Welcome to the Social Lights podcast with Kate Vandervoort, where I interview changemakers and innovators on how they connect with their tribe on social media. Brought to you by Social Mediology. Welcome everyone to episode 49 of the Social Lights podcast. I am here today with Tom Dawkins, who is the co-founder and CEO of Social Impact crowdfunding platform and innovation agency, Start Some Good. In addition to running the platform with the best project success rate in cause crowdfunding, they partner with companies, funders and governments to inspire, unearth, skill up and launch innovative social impact projects. Tom has worked for leading companies and organizations like Ashoka, where he was the first digital communications director and taught them how to Twitter, Hope Lab, and the Australian Center for Social Innovation. He founded the award-winning youth organization Vibewire, opened the first co-working space in Australia and was director of the Australian Changemakers Festival. Welcome, Tom. It is great to have you here. Great to be here. I told you I pinched your bio. <laughs> so I pulled out pulled out all the juicy bits. Talk about a change maker and an innovator. It's really great to be able to explore some of how you've gotten to where you are and some of the great work that you're doing. Mm, thanks so much for the opportunity. So please tell us, what is it that lights you up? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What I am deeply passionate about is, is creating a world where more people have an opportunity to create the future that they want. So I, you know, which is, it, it's funny because I always tell changemakers who are using our platform not to expect people to get passionate about those sorts of abstractions, um, that people tend to be much more focused and passionate about highly specific impacts around specific issues of personal interest to them. But I really am, and it might be my political science degree, I am deeply interested in how change happens and how to make that entire process more democratic. So fundamentally how to get more people involved in creating the change they want. And to me that goes, has always in my mind gone way beyond elections. And I think, you know, when we think about democracy too much, we think about elections and to, and to me, elections are important, but in many ways they, they play the same role in a democracy as AGMs play in the life of an organization, which is to say they're important. You know, if an organization isn't doing AGMs and is, is, is failing at that kind of basic organizational hygiene that's a problem but no one would say the AGM represents the core to what that to, to what running an organization is about or what running a business is about it's where you elect the administrators and, and democracy is where we you know elections are where we elect the administrators of our democracy but democracy should be a doing every other day of the year or every other day of the three year the three years and and so I've always been interested in what does that look like how do we inspire more people to see themselves as change makers and to take action around the change they want to see? How do we resource them and equip them and teach them how, how, to, how to make greatest impact? How do we build communities of people who are on a similar journey to support each other? Um, and I, you know, I've been interested in that since I was a teenager, since I was a frustrated change maker and felt like that my generation was systematically underrepresented and underheard. Um, and, and I guess, you know, it, it's something that I pursued throughout my life just in a, a lot of different forms, from film festivals as a conduit to share stories, to co-working spaces as a place to build communities among social entrepreneurs, to these days much more focused, of course, on online platforms and uh, fundraising infrastructure, as, as well as teaching people how to use it. Yeah, interesting. I love that concept of um, 
how to really break it down because I think often we think change maker innovator it's kind of this big person that's you know got this amazing huge vision and I mm-hmm. love how what you're talking about is breaking that down to be really practical for everybody to be a change maker and an innovator because I think that is one of the fundamental changes in the world and a change in, is a change in the way that change happens and, and a big part of that is that it's sped up you know, and everyone accepts that. Yep, change is sped up. Of course it has. You look at a kind of a technology adoption curve and it's whoosh, you know, um, and, and a whole lot of other things that kind of have a similar pattern. Um, population, carbon, a um, whole lot of challenges as well. Um, but I think that acceleration of change has had this kind of interesting counterintuitive effect where it has democratized change because it's brought, it's brought it into our everyday grasp. You know, a few generations ago, people didn't really believe in change or, you know, a few hundred years ago and, and still today, depending on where you are in the world, because things didn't change really on this, at the rapidity of a human lifetime. You know, if, if you and I were born in a, in a small French village 300 years ago and my dad was a blacksmith and your dad was a blacksmith, well, neither of us were going to probably ever leave that village. I was going to become a blacksmith. You weren't. You were going to get married off. And you know, and so you wouldn't really grow up thinking about how do I make a difference because you couldn't really see that playing out. That was truly a world where change makers were, you know, kings and conquerors and prophets and, um, you know, and the odd inventor, you know, and revolutionaries and so on. I was about to say the odd revolutionary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, great people of history. Um, but today we know that, in fact, you know, that, that, that change is something that we see happen what feels like, you know, all around us every day or at least every year you know the, the whole disruptions of COVID are just another reminder that you know you could just can't no one I think now we've got it ingrained within us that we can't assume that you know 2022 is going to be like 2021 because we're like well 2021 is not like 2020 2020 was really different from 2019 um and and so I think that because we see the change happen now we realize that it's a thing that we do you know, that it is part of the currents of human culture and ingenuity and entrepreneurship, and it's, and it's made up of our everyday choices. And that's really changed the way people go about making an impact as well. You know, in, people used to often seek impact in the later stages of life when it was time to give back and they'd make a big philanthropic donation or they'd get involved in a nonprofit board or they'd, as a retiree, do a bunch of volunteer work. And younger anyone kind of younger than us doesn't, in general, think in terms of time to give back it's about how we live today and the decisions we make today and and do we feel aligned with our own values and do we feel like we're making a positive contribution to the best of our abilities in our work and in our lives and in how we take care of the people around us and so I think change making has yeah really has become an everyday concept Um, it really is something that everyone can do but you know you still need some good tools and you often need some you know you often need some great, uh, some coaching in terms of how best to use those tools if you if you haven't done so before. Yeah, absolutely, and I can't imagine what the next generation. You know, we were just talking offline about the age of our children with young children. They're growing up in this time of enormous change, so change will just be second nature for them. So it'd be fascinating to see where that goes as well. Yeah. Oh, it sure will. And not to kind of take this completely off the rails in terms of the topic of the podcast. But it has made parenting a lot more challenging as well, I think, because when things change less, you could kind of give people the childhood you had and use that as a basic template for like, I know what a good childhood is. My childhood, maybe with these certain differences, you know, I want you to have everything I didn't have. But but now we're like, gosh, I do not know. Like, I, I can't pretend to know really what 
how you know what a good childhood is in 2021. I was a child in a very at a, at a very different time, and it is just a fundamentally different world. And so I think it means that you're like raising people into a world that you yourself are unfamiliar with, which is um, you know, which makes that whole jo- that whole job of like preparing them for the future, obviously like radically more complicated. This conversation could go in so many different ways at this point. I've got so many thoughts going on. This morning I turned on Sunrise to see the weather and Harold the Giraffe from Life Education was at my primary school in Mongoa Public School that only has 91 students left. Um, So it was it's a fascinating conversation because it took me right back to my primary, you know, my primary school years and then obviously sending my kids off to school this morning. It was a, yes fascinating dynamic <laughs> totally. and we're going that was your school <laughs> you were at school anyway we could take that in many different directions take us back way back mm-hmm. um just tell me a little bit about your journey to how you launched start some good so what what happened prior to that that made yeah, that yeah. the obvious next step for you i'll take you back to what my kids call the olden days. Yes. Um, <laughs> Last week. <laughs> yeah, 20 to 25 years ago when I graduated university. So I, you know, I guess even before that. So I, you know, didn't have a really just to go all the way back to high school, but I swear I'll, I'll move quickly. Um, I really didn't have a clear vision of what I wanted to do with myself. Um, and I discovered kind of midway through year 10 this thing called student exchanges that allowed you to go somewhere else for a year. And more for kind of push than pull reasons, just the idea of like getting out of high school and getting away from all that stuff that was really not not serving me very well, at least um, at the time, felt very attractive to me. And so I had a year away and it was this very formative year of my life. I, I went to Spokane, Washington, stayed with a family, and I was exposed to a lot of people with incredibly different worldviews from mine, you know, with debating things that we just didn't debate in Australia, you know, really different kind of what they might call cultural war type debates, but really forcing you to kind of get, I don't know, pretty specific and and, and learn how to kind of articulate your own, you know, having to actually question myself, what do I believe? And then honestly, fairly, you know, by complete happenstance, I was selected to attend a conference called the State of the World Forum, which was this gathering of, of all these incredible leaders, you know, like Ronald Reagan was there and, and, and Margaret Thatcher and, Mikhail Gorbachev um, and, and uh, Tabat and Becky, then vice president, later president of South Africa, and all these other people, and then young people. Um, but they didn't have the, you know, the time, the budget, the inclination to do a global search for worthy 16-year-olds to, to bring along. They partnered with an exchange organization to select from a diverse group of young people already conveniently located in America. And so I was one of 32 youth delegates at this event from 28 different countries. And I had the most extraordinary experience kind of really feeling like for the first time in my life that I had a responsibility to make a difference because I, I, you know, I kind of had an awareness that I didn't really deserve to be there in the grand scheme of things. I hadn't really contributed very much. I wasn't a leader in my community. You know, I didn't have a super firm set of values, although, you know, get me talking and I could debate and I could argue because that was the fam- our family culture. And I had been I'd trained at that from a very early age. Um, and I think that st- stood me in good stead, um, that willingness to pretend to hold opinions in a way in order to, in order to participate and, and argue and, and, and be involved and figure out what you really believe as you go. Um, and so that was a really empowering experience. But coming out of that experience, I, I kind of reflected on it a little bit and realised that what I had just experienced was essentially how youth empowerment tended to happen, that it was tokenistic, haphazard and biased towards wealth. 
because while the 32 of us had this, this strong surface diversity, we were boys and girls in black and white and from the first world and the third world, the developing world, um, every single one of us had parents who could afford to send us to America for a year on exchange. Um, and that got me thinking, what would it look like for everyone to have the opportunity that I just received, you know, the privilege that I just had? And what was at the core of that, of that experience? What made that experience so powerful for me? It was knowing that my voice mattered because people were willing to listen. You can't believe that your voice matters if no one is actually willing to listen to your voice. And I thought, well, it can't, you know, we can't just create these like giant conferences and invite 32 young people in to create that experience. That's not gonna work. How could we do that? And the search for that led me to where I am now. I'm still trying to figure, it, figure that out. You know, how do we give everyone that experience of A, being able to share what matters to them, their stories and perspectives and B, hoping that they're, they're doing, giving them the skills and opportunities and platforms and forums uh, such that they can do that in a way that hopefully people will listen and be, and be willing to engage with them. Um, and I've been kind of, you know, trying to figure that out ever since. And it's taken, you know, kind of a couple of different so, kind of social enterprise forms and a, a several nonprofits, you know, three different nonprofits by the time I finished university, the third of which was Vibewire, which is now 22 years old or something shocking like that. Um, crazy. It's like I had this child during university kind of that I don't see very much anymore, but <laughs> think about because they're all growing up and out in the world um, without me. Um, but yeah, so that's what kind of lights me up and, and what, that's kind of what put me on the journey I'm still on now. And it's what led me to Ashoka, which was a really formative experience working in the US, um, being there when Obama was elected um, and, and also, you know, kind of being thrust into a social media specialist role, which I'd honestly only dabbled in during the, the previous eight years I've been building Vibewire. And kind of when you're building an organization, you know, I spent the, I spent the majority of my time trying to raise money from people and, and doing kind of business development of various sorts. Um, and then like building teams to deliver on all my over promises to the people who'd funded and employed us and so on and trying to like, you know, pull off that balancing act as we all as we all innovated and, and, and tried a whole bunch of new stuff and all of which worked of course. Um, but when I got to the US, you know, I ended up in a specialist social media role in 2008. And that was, in, you know, that was, a, that was a wonderful time actually to kind of be really exploring and playing because no one really knew how to use them. I feel like there was much less agreed best practice and so on. And that was kind of an exciting, you know, wild west of, of trying stuff and seeing what worked and what didn't and sharing, you know. I call it exactly the same thing because I started my company about the same time. Yeah. And, you know, I always call it the days of the wild, wild west where you could whack up a Facebook page and stuff would happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you could invent hashtags and have everyone adopt them. And you know, yes. good idea, hashtag. Great idea. But I also say it was kind of the big black hole for people then, but it still is for so many people now, 12 years on, you know, we're mm. still 12, 13 years on, still yeah. defining, I guess, those um, those norms and, you know, what's acceptable and what's not. And I think Facebook's yeah, important every day of the week. Mm -hmm. Trying to figure that out at the moment. Yes, and I've certainly, you know, not as expert on some of them um, myself as I, as I once was and it was because I'm back, you know, Back to back to I guess leading a team and so on and, and certainly having an interest in um, and and obviously doing pieces of it myself for myself on my personal networks and so on where I you know building community and learning from people my peers um, but certainly in some ways in some ways I miss the days but I got to be kind of more focused in that way and go go deeper you know like wow full time job just doing social media it's hard to imagine now that I split myself in a million different places running you know running this team raising money delivering speaking 
having great chats on podcasts, um, etc. Yeah, well, back then social media was something you could kind of fit between everything else, but now you say, as you say, oh, yeah, but I got to drop in exactly, but I did, and then I got to drop into it, and suddenly, yeah, when I got to the US, it's one of the tricky things actually about. Uh, not to I hope they tell me if I'm going too far off topic again, though, but trying to transition from Australia to the US is that everyone there is so much more specialised. There are so many more people. So whereas someone here might be a digital comms person and really skilled and they've, and they've spent, you know, and they might like write the odd speech for their boss and, you know, do a little bit of PR and outreach and help out with event management when the time comes and also do run social accounts and also do the Facebook advertising um, in the US, that's six different people you know, who've, who've just done that one thing, six different jobs. There is no equivalent job. They just have fewer specialist roles because the greater scale of almost everything means that, I mean, obviously there are still tiny teams that do require specialists, but they're not normally the people who are sponsoring people to, to move over there. So you do, you have to kind of translate yourself into one of those kind of, and I, I was very fortunate, I think, that I, I found the, the right kind of, I, I don't think I ever would have applied actually. For that job, that was that they recognised in me the kind of person they were looking for who was a social entrepreneur, but, you know, also kind of had been using, you know, had been on the forefront. We've been very experimental in how we've used online technologies um, at Bywire. We'd built, you know, a youth culture portal in 2001. Um, and we'd had, like, very kind of early versions of what would now be called, I guess, a virtual summit in 2003, you know. Um, I actually so remember really some of stuff. those early days of Vibewire. I'm not sure if our paths crossed back then, but I was um, CEO of Discovery Australia, the youth, right. large youth organisation. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I was definitely, I'm sure, you know, we had collaborations and had similar mm -hmm. people. And yeah, so I remember, yeah. remember those early days. <laughs> so talk to me about Start Some Good and mm -hmm where the idea of that came from and, and what impact does that make in the world? Yeah, so I guess that was a follow-on from, so I, I found it starts some good with, with someone I'd, I'd met working at Ashoka um, in, in DC uh, on, the, on, the, on the communications team with um, Alex Budak. And, and so, you know, the mandate of Ashoka, Ashoka's mission is to create in everyone a change maker world. So that's, you know, what drew me to them. That's, that's kind of my personal mission as well. How do you create a world where everyone can make a difference? Um, and, so the mandate as the digital communications director was how do we use digital communications to create and everyone a change maker world. And I really liked that because it meant that digital comms was core to the mission, not just talking about the mission. In a lot of nonprofits, digital communications is in some cases pretty kind of, it, it is like pretty extraneous to the actual delivery of the impact model. You know, if the impact model is working with homeless youth, you know, social media is normally just a fundraising channel potentially, or a volunteer channel. It's a resourcing channel, not an impact channel. Um, whereas when your goal is how do we get more people getting involved in creating change, social media is an impact channel. As I used to like to say, it's in fact the only impact channel that can scale to, to, the, to the extent of our actual ambitions. You know, we're, uh, they also run, you know, accelerator programs and youth leadership programs, but not going to be a world where everyone does the youth leadership program or everyone participates, but maybe through media, through storytelling, through communications, you could create that big picture culture change. Um, and so after that, though, I moved to San Francisco and had a, I had a very startup experience where three weeks after I got there, the company, I, I was there to set up a, a West Coast office for, pulled the plug, leaving me and one other person stranded. Um, pretty stressful for me being on a sponsored working visa. Um, I barely kept afloat there. They let me essentially freelance uh, and then run it through them, kind of 
So I wasn't completely in a lurch. I was essentially freelancing, but then able to run it through. So I was still getting paid by them, but having to meet these very specific kind of amounts of income in order to meet the conditions of my, of my sponsorship. And anyway, that was a hectic three months of my wife and I lived on a, on a, you know, inflatable bed. Didn't make sense to buy furniture. We kind of got stuck. I didn't, didn't have time in those first couple of weeks. I was actually away for two out of the three. So I was barely, literally barely set feet on the ground. Um, but this was, you know, kind of continuations of the, the post crash um, in the US. Funding was hard to find in, in I guess, 2010 uh, for startups. But anyway, managed to cling on in San Francisco. I got a job with a group called Hope Lab, uh, which is an innovation agency in Silicon Valley inventing social change technology. But less so that job and more so just being in San Francisco was what really led to start some good because I felt like for the first time in my life, I could see what a really pro-innovation ecosystem looks like. And it, there were a couple of key things that I noticed about that. One was how encouraging it was. That everyone was so encouraging. Like it's such, there really is a culture of like, what are you working on? And expecting that people are working on, on something that is important to them, that they're passionate about, you know, that you go to a party and you literally meet a dozen founders, you know, people who are pursuing their dreams, making stuff happen. Um, and a big part of what makes that possible is the availability of risk tolerant capital, that there are investors willing to take early bets on things that probably won't work in order to figure out what can work. And I realized that's really different from how we fund social progress in the kind of not-for-profit, you know, social good space that I was familiar with. But there we tend to fund things that are already proven to work. And then there can be a lot of money to scale up some of those things, and that's really important. But in, in I guess, San Francisco terms, that's the work of VCs, venture capitalists. But what makes that possible is the work of angels, people who are willing to put their own money at early stages to discover what works, and who do so in the knowledge that most things won't work. When you, you, know, when you support that early, most things don't work. But the only way to differentiate the things that can work from things that can't is to try stuff. And trying stuff takes some money. So providing those small amounts of early capital um, and there's just very little of that when it comes to social impact. So I looked around for who else is doing a good job of supporting the new. And I thought Kickstarter are actually doing, having an amazing impact on creative entrepreneurship, helping support, supporting artists and so on to build communities of early supporters that want to fund their early experimentations and, and early work. And I thought that's exactly what social entrepreneurs need as well. And then in Ally, who's curious and, and interested and supportive of what they want to do. And so we set Start Some Good up to, I guess, initially focus on that funding piece, but increasingly these days we focus on the capacity building, education, training, helping people design and, um, you know, great, you know, projects that can work as well as leverage tools like crowdfunding to, to launch those. Um, and if I could summarize that kind of cultural difference in a pro-innovation ecosystem versus one that's not, I think it comes down to the question that gets asked to new ideas. And I really noticed this because the question that really gets asked by the traditional philanthropic grant giving kind of community when it comes to new ideas is, will it work? Prove to me it will work. Convince me it will work. And if I'm convinced it will work, I'll fund it. Whereas in San Francisco, the question they ask is, could it work? Is it conceivable that that could work? I mean, it probably won't, but could it? And if it did, what would that do to the world? What are the, what are the potential impacts that get created? And of course, that's a question that opens up space for innovation, for experimentation, for trying new things. And when it then doesn't work, you haven't let anyone down either. The idea was that it could work and therefore was worth trying. Rather than, you know, you have to, in Australia, there's, there's much less tolerance for failure in our philanthropic community as well, because you've promised someone it will work. They said, will it work? You said, yes, I swear it will work. Please come on. And then it didn't work, you're like, oh my God. And they're like, you let me down, you said it would work. And it's like, well, you know, this is not actually how you learn. It's not actually how you figure out new things. Um, 
And so that's our mission at Starts and Good, essentially, is we want to, you know, reduce the barriers to trying new things. And part of that is technology, but a big part of that is guidance and coaching and support and community. And so when you think back to when you, and that's a fascinating distinction, and I find exactly the same in the digital marketing space, you know, for years I've travelled to the US to find that, that tribe, I guess, of people who there is a real culture there where it's how can I help you? You know, wow, what you're doing sounds really interesting. What can I do to, who can I introduce you to? How can I help? And Mm -hmm. it's starting to happen a little bit more here in Australia, but I've certainly noticed that cultural difference as well. Um, So when you started Start Some Good, was the community, did it flock to you in the way that you expected or was that something that you really had to consciously invest in and build over time? Yeah, we definitely had to, I guess, build it over time. I mean, particularly there's a bit of a, I guess, paradox in the the launching of something like a crowdfunding platform, which is where we started. And it's important to know that crowdfunding platforms are not community spaces, in fact. I think one of the great misunderstandings a lot of people have about crowdfunding is that there are communities hanging out on crowdfunding platforms waiting to fund things and that therefore they are raising money from the start some good community from the kickstarter community from the indiegogo community whatever and that's never true you're raising funding from your community and tools like start some good are are the tools you use to kind of activate the community you are building Um, and so we are, and so, you know, it's interesting because I guess part of the, we've made a lot of changes in, as I said, kind of more in the kind of coaching community building direction over the last couple of years, because I think we didn't really understand the business we we're getting into, which is a bit of a classic uh, mistake by people from the not-for-profit world, getting excited about social enterprise and business and wanting to leverage it to make a difference, because we were insistently high touch for people using our platform, because we wanted we want them to succeed and we, we really cared and we wanted to, but that kind of breaks the, the crowdfunding business model, which is a platform business model. And platforms only work on high volume, low touch. Preferably you get them to a point where they're no touch, where it literally takes zero, it, you know, it, it has zero incremental cost to add in another whatever onto the platform. And that's where they've got it to, you know, with places like Indiegogo, it literally costs them nothing for another project to launch. Therefore any success rate will be highly profitable past a certain volume. Um, but we insist kind of on actually interacting with people, providing advice, providing feedback. It's why we have a high success rate, but it's been hard to scale because it, it actually kind of, in some ways, the average campaign, it's almost like crowdfunding is a bit of a loss leader for us from a business point of view, um, because the, the pure just click the ticket model doesn't pay for that. You know, that pays for the automation, that pays for the, we don't even look at it, just good luck. And platforms that operate like that can be highly profitable. But from an impact point of view, they normally have success rates around 10% or in the teens. People are shocked by how low the success rate in crowdfunding is. And that's just kind of an unbearable you know, loss of human passion and energy to me for, such, for so many projects to be failing. And they often fail not because they're fundamentally flawed, but because they just don't know how to raise funds. They just don't know who to tell the story to. They haven't done any social media marketing. You know, they have a great idea to address a challenge in their community or life and they're an expert on that particular challenge but they're complete novices many people when it comes to you know building online community pitching ideas designing target markets to pitch ideas to successfully and all those fundamental pieces and so the way a lot of crowdfunding campaigns I always think about is it's a bit like being shown into a room that's filled with wood and saws and hammers and nails and instruction manuals on how to make tables. And we're all experts at tables. Like you're probably sitting at a table, I'm standing at a table, like we use tables every day, right? 
Um, now, a lot of people are handier than me, but speaking for myself, even if I was in that room with literally everything I needed, I couldn't build a table literally to save my life. If my whole life was hanging in the balance, there's still no way. Yeah, just no way. It, my, my brain doesn't work in quite that three-dimensional way to try and figure out. And that's just, that's something I use every day. And I think a lot of people kind of approach crowdfunding in a slightly similar way that I, I've seen crowdfunding campaigns before, which is a little bit like having used the table. You know, I know, I, I know what's going on. I, I can see what, and they often look at campaigns to get a sense of what works and what doesn't. But you can't see anything from looking at a campaign because everything that matters is under the, is under the hood. It's the outreach, it's the storytelling, it's the definition of the target market, it's the, it's the hard work and hustle. Um, well, and it's even they, understanding what the community looks like before they started, because yeah. I often say to clients that you've got no idea what their ad budget is, what their email list looks like, how oh, much totally. they put in behind the scenes. Yeah. A lot of the big successes are professional product launches with like six full-time people working on it for six months kind of thing. And they make it look like an easy overnight success. Yeah, that's part of the look in some yeah. respects, yeah. Um, and so... And, and, and so we try and, you know, we try and very simply, you know, I guess, place a coach in that room as well. You know, there's all the, all the raw materials you need, which we might call the tech. There's the manuals, which we might call kind of the resources on the website, the how, you know, the frequently asked questions, all of that sort of stuff. But even kind of knowing how to read that and translate that into your campaign is often sophisticated. So our difference is that we have someone in that room with you, essentially, there to answer your questions and offer you support. Um, but it took us some, it took us quite some years to work out why that was hard to make work economically, I guess. And, um, and so what, where that's kind of led us is, is, is kind of focusing more and more and more on that coaching and, and teaching and capacity building piece. Um, and part, what, part of what we wanted to do with that was meet people earlier. You know, when, when someone rocks up at a crowdfunding platform, they already think they're launch ready. Uh, but if they're kind of fundamentally not launch ready, there's only so much you can do. You can give a bit of advice, or we need to tighten this pitch here and so on. But often that would have been good advice for them to have heard some, some time prior to that. And so that, that's part of what led us to working with people to develop more capacity building programs and our own flagship program, Good Hustle, which is a social enterprise design course. So really helping people get their ducks in a row when it comes to their impact model, business model, target market and so on. So that if you decide to crowdfund or seek investment or apply to an accelerator or just start pitching to customers, you know, you're ready to do that because you really have that clarity. Um, and it's also what led us to, I guess, offer what we call upgrades on the platform as well, which also makes us quite unique that you can bring in, if you want even more of that, we offer kind of the most high touch support of any platform, but you know, it's still circumscribed. There's only so much even, you know, that the model allows, even, even to the extent that we've kind of bent it as much as we can. So if you still want more, we offer a whole bunch of kind of coaching upgrades, uh, consulting, and then co-design where we will actually draft up the campaign, the language, the language guide, the outreach guide for someone, helping that person who's gonna have two things, you know, a great idea, and then a willingness to work hard to make the idea happen. But often people have those two things, but you need to know how to work hard. Because if you, you know, a lot of people waste a lot of time trying to get their ideas out there because they're willing to put in the work. They just don't know how to, focus it for the best impact and so a big part of the role we often help play is helping people focus the effort there's nothing you can do if someone's not willing to work hard on their idea you know no amount of advice is going to overcome that blockage um, but if someone's willing to, to put the yards in then helping that's where coaches can play such an important role in helping orientate and strategy can play an important role and you know guidance can really impact when someone is willing to implement the guidance and make it happen and so we always stop just short of, we, we won't run anyone's campaign because we think it's such a fundamental 
what you're really doing when you're crowdfunding is building a community. That's, that's what crowdfunding is. It's, it's do you want to be part of this with me? Are you willing to back my vision? Are you willing to come with me on this journey? And, and the only person who can authentically make that ask is, is you on behalf of your idea, you know? But we try and pack everything around that. You still gotta make that ask, but we can help you obviously give you the tools to host that ask, provide coaching to help you craft that ask. We can even help draft that kind of script up for you and really kind of help you try and nail that language, but you have to be willing to deliver the ask because that's going to be your community. And that if managed well, we hear this all the time from our crowdfunders. They say, you know, I came to your platform because I needed money, which, you know, fair enough. It's a fundraising platform. But actually what I realized I got out of it was this community. And so it's like years later now, the money's long gone and this community is still with me. And, and I've, I've now realized that that's the real asset is the social capital, not just the financial capital. And I love that. So when you look at that, those that have been most successful at building that community, what mm -hmm. are some of the commonalities that you see that, that people bring to, to that process? I'll give you a quick formula if you like. So we have a five C's formula, which is a really you know, way of summarizing this sentence. It's clarity, credibility, communities, channels, and courage. And you can think of those even as three little buckets. So clarity and credibility are the core attributes of the story itself. So clarity allows me to understand what you're doing. Like it's like you, inspiration and confusion are the opposite of each other. I think actually like it's impossible to inspire when you're confused, like you just can't, you know? Um, and so you've got to be really clear on, you know, the key attributes. And so that often if it's a social enterprise, for instance, they've got to be clear on the product and the product position, but also the impact. If that's a key part of your story, you've got to be able to describe that in a really clear way that I understand as well. But what people often think is that if their story is clear enough, that that will be enough and it's not you need credibility as well you need a reason i need a reason not just to i don't just need to understand you i need to believe you and believe that you are capable of doing what you say i'm going to do and i think what holds a lot of people back from backing an idea is not that they don't believe in the idea i love the you know you're going to end homelessness that's fantastic i would love to see that happen i'm totally on board i'm just skeptical about whether you in fact can end homelessness and you haven't done enough to overcome my skepticism, but a lot of people kind of endlessly double down on what is it like, you, you don't want to end homelessness, what the hell? Um, but no, I've got to, you know, you've got to, you've got to have a coherent plan, the right people around you, the right partners, a way of signaling the right previous experiences, some part of that. You don't need to have done it before, but if you haven't done it before, having the backing of people who have really, really helps. Um, so helping people think through that. And then communities and channels, as you know, is the core of marketing. You've got to figure out who you who it's for. And again, a lot of, and I think this sometimes is hardest for people who are passionate about social environmental impacts, like social entrepreneurs, because they often think in universalist terms. Everybody like, should want to support my project. Exactly. Yeah. But also like you look at, I've got the millennial development goals on the wall behind me. They're all universalist, you know, like quality food for everyone, zero poverty. And so, you know, it's really great for us to have these universalist goals, but as someone launching a new idea, even if in theory, in theory, there is some theoretical future where everyone maybe could use or benefit from your thing. That's still not the same as the target market for your launch. This is a launch. A, a launch target market is not the same as your eventual target market. It's like, who are your early adopters? And get really clear on them. Um, and so only by obviously working out, so by communities, we really mean carefully chosen communities, being really clear. And we have a formula, not to get to the weeds, of these different types of stories that can exist within a within a crowdfunding campaign, because one of our principles is crowdfunding campaigns are about convening and not converting. And again, the more socially passionate 
often because they have that universal vision, they want everyone to buy into the vision. But and that's that's important work. Changing hearts and mind is in really important social change work. It's hardly ever like the crowdfunding campaign is hardly ever the time and place to try and do that changing hearts and minds work. The, the crowdfunding campaign is about community building and community building is about connecting with people who already have something in common. They already care about refugees. They're already passionate about food trucks. They're already interested in fashion. They already support indigenous arts. They already care about other women, you know, particularly those from other countries fleeing violence. They, you know, there's some, there's a hook, what we call a hook that connects them to your campaign. You don't have to, you don't have to convince them of that. That's what they already believe, but you have to identify that and then you have to figure out how to get to them. And that's where channels comes in. So when you know that you want to reach maybe three distinct niches for your social enterprise that supports uh, refugees, by, because you're gonna, you're gonna communicate to people who care about refugees, you're gonna communicate to people who, care, who are passionate about food trucks, because food trucks are cool, and you're gonna talk to people who really like social enterprise as a model. That's three different outreach strategies, three different sets of channels, different, different Facebook groups, different hashtags, different podcasts, and then, and then courage. You got to get out there and do the work. Um, and so that's, you know, the, the campaigns that succeed have all of those. You need all of them. Any one of them can, can completely undermine the other four. Um, and particularly when it comes to those communities and channels, people just do that backwards all the time. And I just think, and you must come across this all the time. I, this used to drive me crazy when I was a social media manager. I did a lot of talking to people, and even internally, like Ashoka is a very diverse organization. Like it had like 40 country teams and then 16 different kind of divisions and programs. So I was almost like a social media consultant just internally. And people would always be like, how should we use Twitter? And I'm like, whoa, let's back up a little bit. What are you trying to achieve? Um, and it's a little bit like that with crowdfunding. What people so often like, people say to me like, just like, what channel, what, what, what is better for crowdfunding, Facebook or Twitter? Like, There's no better for crowdfunding. There's just what's better for who you're trying to reach. Are they, more active on Facebook or Twitter. You need to figure that out, not ask me. Either can be great. I've seen people rock out on any given, some people run their successful campaigns entirely through YouTube, others entirely through Instagram, others entirely on Twitter, because that's others kind of spread out equally. Some entirely offline. I've seen someone just like go around town and speak at 30 events over the course of 40 days while crowdfunding, giving out the URL like in person, but just because they knew they were good in person and actually not good at social media. So, but it's, it's figuring out what the right set of channels are for you and most importantly, actually not really for you, for the audience that you want to reach. <laughs> like, yeah. you, like what you enjoy is kind of secondary, although you may be and often are an example of at least one of those um, supporter groups, but maybe not the others. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's interesting because, I mean, this is all the same for whether you've got a business or a social enterprise. The, you know, the strategy is the same. If you don't understand who you're speaking to and you don't know where it is that they're hanging out, then, you know, no, your you chances of success are pretty low. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also I love that, that we're often our own avatar because I know a lot of people in social enterprise in particular, um, you know, have whatever the challenge is that they're trying to address, they've had some personal experience with yep. that in some way or a very deep care. And so they're often their own avatar, which is where the low-hanging fruit generally is because you know where to find yourself on social media. But often there's a couple more, exactly. So that, that could be more intuitive. But often there's a couple of other kind of pieces of low-hanging fruit that they just have to realise that there'll be, that there's people who care, that will care about their project for a reason different than their own. 
you know, that, that you're really passionate about supporting refugees and you've thought, how can I best do that? And you've thought to yourself, oh, jobs. Jobs are the most important thing. You've thought, how can I create jobs? Like, oh, I know, a food truck. That's a relatively low capital investment and we can get, you know, we can get to business pretty quickly and maybe I've had some food service experience. I feel confident about that piece. I'm going to launch a food truck. And so what we often see is people who they're in it for what we call the issue hook. What's the specific impact? So in this case, refugees. But maybe but there's these other hooks that some that other people are equally passionate about. So in this case, like just like there are food truck like Facebook groups and so on. And you'd be amazed how many people might be launching a food truck and not tell Sydney's most passionate food, food truck supporters about it because they themselves don't hang out on food truck Facebook groups. They themselves are not really super passionate about food trucks. They've just they've got there through through asking a series of questions about how to help refugees. They're passionate about refugees. And yeah, they should obviously like hit up the refugee you know, the community of people who share their passion for supporting refugees. That's one little cluster of low-hanging fruit that they should absolutely pick. But so many people limit themselves to that, just to communicate to people who are like them. And that's that's kind of a failure of planning in some way, you know, that because you're right, that's the thing that you can do without having to think too much about it. Um, but if you if you stopped and, you know, were willing to just put a little bit of effort into it, you'd, you'd find these two other clusters of almost equally as low-hanging fruit for people who love food trucks. Very easy to start a conversation about your social enterprise food truck with a person who has a stated love of food trucks. And then maybe the social enterprise community, which people who are brand new to this may not realize is quite an interconnected, vibrant community Australia with its own Facebook groups and LinkedIn groups and hashtags and conferences and key email lists of influential podcasts. And so on, all of whom are, again, going to be quite receptive to your cool new food truck social enterprise. Um, but you've got to get out there and tell them. Um, and so, yeah, stopping and, you know, doing a little bit of planning can, can as with any, I guess, outreach or marketing campaign, uh, make all the difference. Yeah, and it's really that plan that's going to see the success as opposed to here I am, this tool is what's going to actually generate the results yeah. for me. And it's the plan. That's right. Um, and, and because, you know, fundamental to social media, I'm sure you talk about all the time, is that people have fairly limited attention spans. You've got to hook them in pretty quickly. And so, I th again, I think when it comes to fundraising, people always think about what we call the second conversion when someone gives you money. And maybe it doesn't think enough about the first conversion when someone gives you their attention. Because if someone, you know, we, we often act as if everyone's gonna read our campaign page as if they owe it to us, as if everyone, you know, as if everyone owes it to us to at least give us five minutes. And yeah, it would be really good if everyone did give us at least five minutes to actually read what we were trying to do. But just the reality of the world today, I was gonna say the sad reality, but it's not even worth getting sad about, it is just the way it is. Um, is that you have to win that five minutes. You know, we're all overwhelmed by the amount of things that want our five minutes already. Um, and so you're not just competing with like other fundraisers or other, you're, you're competing with like Coca-Cola and you're competing with the NRL and you're competing with like Beyonce for people's fight, you're competing with the French Open right now, like for people's five minutes of like bits of attention. You know, when I'm on the train to work, I might click two links on my Twitter. You know, I might scroll through my Twitter and at most I might actually go through to a couple of things for five minutes at a time and then my journey's over. Um, and so I think it comes down to really thinking about why is someone gonna give you their attention, not, take, not, not acting like they owe it to you, but acting like you gotta win it. And you gotta win it by making it as relevant to them as succinctly as possible. And that's what these hooks come down to. You, you know, it's all very well that like once people read your campaign, they'll realize it's all about a food truck. But if your tweets just say, we're creating jobs for refugees, yay, check it out that food truck fan has no reason to click on it. It's, it's not at all obvious that there's a connection to something that they deeply care about. Um, whereas if you go, you know, I'm launching Sydney's next great food truck, check it out. I thought, that sounds interesting. I want to know more about that. Um, 
And so just crafting those hooks to kind of get people to engage, you know, to actually find out what you're doing, because what you're doing is awesome and really inspiring, but, you know, we've got to actually get people there. And then some portion of them, um, probably a slightly lower percentage than you wish, will still, um, will actually then go through with and give them money. But what's great is that then a very high proportion of those will share it. And this is kind of when you compare crowdfunding to other fundraising methods, I think where crowdfunding has a distinct advantage is that it gets into that second degree really powerfully. That crowdfunding, in particular, I'd say it depends on the model. This is one of the real advantages that the kind of crowdfunding that we do, which, which we call the tipping point, but it's often called all or nothing, where there's a goal you have to reach, a goal that really matters, comes into it because people know then that simply giving you a donation is not enough. They've got to help you reach the goal. And therefore, a really high proportion of people share and when you think about it, sharing is often a more personal act for someone than just giving some money. Like we might chip in $10, $20 here or there, you know, that's just kind of private act. Um, but to really like recommend something to my friends and tell them that I want them to do it as well, is something that I will only, I, I probably do that only a handful of times a year in a serious way, whereas I give to a lot of things. Um, and so crowdfunding that's is really an endorsement, cool. isn't it? You're, yeah, you're it's a big endorsement. You're putting yourself on the line and kind of, yeah, yeah standing up in front of everyone. And say, <clears throat> Excuse me, um, I'd like you to check this out and give some of your money to it even. You know, we don't often tell our, our friends what they should spend their money on necessarily, but, um, and, so, and so I think crowdfunding is uniquely good at turning donors into advocates. You still need to maybe, you know, capture those donors in the first place, but then you can really get this peer-to-peer -peer dynamic going, which can be very powerful. What do you do at Start Some Good? Because I imagine that the community that you build amongst the crowdfunders is just mm. as important to them because of the support that they get from that community. So what do you do in your organization to, to put that community around your crowd fundraisers? Well, so, I mean, we don't put that around the crowdfunders to some extent because you can't simply pack other fund founders around. Like, we don't, you know, it's really like, you, you've got to, so we're, we're a service provider. So we, we play kind of, for these fundraising campaigns, we play an equivalent role to the post office if the post office also taught you how to run direct mail campaigns successfully. So we're connective tissue that helps people deliver messages to people. And actually, most importantly, what we do is help translate interest into money through the actual transitional process. So it, it was actually one of my, my mistaken assumptions when we first launched was that people would, in fact, crowdfund more repeatedly than they do. But I think because we're focused on social enterprise, not on nonprofit or charity work, um, that that hasn't proved to be the case, I guess, because people tend to use us at very specific moments. If you're a charity, then raising money from the community is core business. That's what you do. But if you're a social enterprise, it's probably not core business. It's probably something you're only going to do at very specific moments for really strong tactical reasons. And launching is one of those really key moments where crowdfunding is a really amazing way to essentially do a pop-up digital shop, offering your actual product or service without having to kind of invest all the money in manufacturing it and developing your own shop or, or sales infrastructure or any of that. So we see a lot of people launching stuff. But when you launch a, you know, an indigenous streetwear label through, so through, through, you know, a crowdfunding campaign, what you're taking that money and doing is building your own online shop. And then from that point onwards, driving people to your own sales infrastructure, which is exactly what you should be doing. And so, you know, not necessarily coming back repeatedly. In fact, I, that's on my mind at the moment because that was a great launch we did like two and a half years ago. And he's building a new campaign at the moment on the site for a very specific investment he needs to make. And that's kind of what we see, you know, like, and so it's not, it's not a, it's actually not an easy to activate community. They're the world's busiest people, early stage founders, as you'd know. So we can't, we certainly don't offer people that we can just willy nilly drive them to someone else's campaign. Um, 
I was thinking more whether people who've run successful crowdfunding campaigns might be willing to support those coming up underneath them with, but I can see what you're saying. Yeah, we often get them to speak. Um, So we, you know, we love to bring them back. So increasingly as we we are building community these days, we have a membership offer and we're having two to three entrepreneur chats a month Mm -hmm. um, for that community. So we are bringing people back a lot. It's been really nice for us as well. It's also because we've been running this Good Hustle program. And again, that's been a moment. People do a 10-week course once and then they finish it. And after doing that for a couple of years and building up a couple hundred people to finish, we're like, we got to like actually kind of do more to connect these guys to each other after the program is finished and, and stay in touch with them. And so this kind of membership offer combines those two, those two interests. Um, and it started to build, yeah, as I said, kind of it's a, a community as a product, I guess, is, is kind of new for us. We've more been in this, you know, a service provider. Um, helping people graduate from the exit. We, of course, in, in terms of our social media, you know, share all the, the key campaigns on our, on our project and, and, and offer them. But again, we, we try to be really, you know, I guess part of our, we're painfully realistic with people about, you know, what works and what doesn't. And a lot of our social media following is people who are themselves on the journey of starting things. And they are often not super cashed up. Um, it's just the fact of the matter. And they're often very busy. Um, or they might've been someone who supported a, a crowdfunding campaign but they're often as as we said like right at the start they're often interested in, in quite specific things so they might be interested in you know like um you know supporting you know uh, street kids in in non pen that doesn't mean that they're you know a, a target audience that they're a, a strong target audience for you if you're doing a no-kill animal shelter in adelaide um you're gonna have to figure out people who care about you know animal rescue in Adelaide, probably, um, maybe some nationally or internationally who are really, you know, just love, just love those kitten pictures and so on. But um, that's where, you know, we really try and get people while we do do everything we do to have, or while we, we amplify and we push, we really underemphasize that. And it's kind of maybe why I've been a bit cautious in emphasizing it here, because what it's really about is people figuring out who their community is and getting hyper-focused on that. And then we share it with this, you know, br- this broader community of people who are interested in social entrepreneurship and stuff. And some number of them will check it out and will support as well, but they're much more likely to do so if they see that campaign with existing traction. So that's kind of the paradox of all crowdfunding in a way is that you don't expect someone, don't expect strangers from the internet to be your first supporters because the fact that you don't have many supporters is intrinsically uninspiring because it undermines the credibility piece. You might be telling a really good story but the only thing I have evidence for is that you're not doing a very good job of running this crowdfunding campaign. And that undermines my belief that you're going to do a good job of launching the food truck or the animal shelter or whatever it is else you're talking about. Because I don't know you, so I have no, I have no evidence that you, this is a beautiful campaign, but I don't know if you really have the skills. Um, so it helps a lot if I can come in and go, oh, this is something's happening here. There's some people coming together. There's 40, 60, 80, whatever the number is. Um, people already on board. It's the most fundamental human heuristic there is for assessing credibility is, is there a line? Are there people there already? We want to eat in restaurants that have people eating in them, not restaurants that are empty because we have this baseline belief that like, if that restaurant was good, people would be in there eating. So it can't be very good. I have no direct evidence of that one way or another, but that seems like a safe assumption. Crowdfunding campaigns exactly the same. If this person was knew what they were talking about, other people would have already supported them. Someone who knows them, but it, it seems like even their mum hasn't backed them yet. So it's kind of bizarre to think that I would. I think one of the interesting things you just mentioned there too is around 
community, sometimes people come together around a life stage or situation. Like mm-hmm. what comes to mind is I know when I was pregnant, I was in all these pregnancy groups. Well, yeah, I'm not yeah. still in those pregnancy groups. And whilst no. I care about other mothers having children, I don't stick around and offer them advice because I'm on the next part of my yeah, journey. The stage of life. Yeah. And, and you know, so some communities is similar. Um, yeah. Companies. Is, and know. I imagine that your crowdfunders find the same that their communities at launch may become lifelong community members around that cause or that purpose or that business. Yeah. But they also may not. They may be there for a particular... No, that's right. Yeah, and that's that idea that your launch target market is not always your actual target market because your launch target market will certainly also involve a group of people who really care about you. You know, and I think crowdfunding is good at blending, you know, who like... I don't, you know, you're, you're making some skincare thing and I don't, I don't really care about that, but we've been friends for a long time and how cool to see you pursuing this dream. And of course I want to see you succeed. So I'm in for $50, even though I don't really care about skincare. Um, so particularly in the launch stages, you'll have that blend and that's a really important blend because it overcomes that first mover challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you convince the person who really is interested in skincare that you're actually going to like be offering something that they want to buy well it really helps often to have 20 or 30 people who maybe don't even care about skincare but really care about you and want to back you as your kind of seed funders on your campaign your, your day one donors because it creates that you know the people in the restaurant um because it makes it makes it feel a lot safer uh, for someone else to be like i want him as well and, and then and you the get what- to a point where you have to ask your family to stop commenting on all of your content because as proud yeah, as you are, mum, can you stop telling people you're my mum? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell them you're just a customer. You just want that. <laughs> we walk up and go, wow, what a good deal. Um, and try to influence everyone around you. Um, but, um, so, yeah, and, and so often you'll see that transition happen a little even in the campaign, within a campaign, but certainly you'll see it happen like post-campaign is obviously as you move from launch into like more like business as usual. Um, you'll be trending from people with a personal connection, supporting you for personal reasons to, to people who either have, and you've still got two key vectors to work with though. You've got the product, people who care about skincare. And if you're a social enterprise, let's say your skincare is all creating employment opportunities for, you know, recently uh, refugee women and migrants, um, you still got that powerful story as well. So you still got those two pieces to work with, but you will have maybe, you will be less leveraging those personal networks as time goes on. One of the interesting dynamics we see actually in a crowdfunding campaign is it, is it, it starts with personal networks, moves into kind of more of those product and issue-focused outreach and then finishes with personal networks as well around the deadline and particularly around all or nothing deadline that when people need that final boost, you know, they're a little short and they need the final boost to get over the all or nothing finish line. But often, again, it's the people with the greatest kind of care for them and interest and most passion um, who will help get across the line. And I'll, I'll say that that's why no one ever falls just short. Um, if I can sneak this in, I think a lot of people choose keep what you raise models rather than all or nothing because all or nothing just sounds so scary, so binary, you know, like the, and the idea of they think about they kind of choose in order to avoid the worst case scenario rather than to optimise the best case scenario. But in terms of helping you reach a real goal that you need to reach to make something happen, just there's just no question whatsoever that an all or nothing, whether that's Kickstarter or possible or, or, or starts some good or another, but that model is like four times more likely to help you actually arrive at that goal than the keep what you raise. And that's because it, it, it's so much more credibility, this piece that we're talking about, you know, because what are you ultimately promising? In a keep what you raise, all you're really promising is that you're keeping their money. You can't promise anything else because you may not have achieved the, the funding you need to actually follow through with everything else, but you're keeping their money regardless. 
with an all or nothing, you're promising I'll only take your money if I reach my goal. And that act of like backing yourself as well as being held accountable, as well as being able to promise the outcomes, I'll only take the money if I can actually launch this food truck, um, obviously helps people be braver in terms of supporting new ideas. And it really helps you get beyond that family and friends. Your family and friends probably won't care. They're just trying to be helpful. But people who actually want the product might need a little bit of convincing and obviously be a bit nervous about backing someone who's never launched a food truck before and who doesn't as at least yet have the sufficient budget to do so. And so, so many things come back to credibility ultimately if, if people are willing to like take that leap and provide that kind of angel, to, to loop it right back, that kind of angel support. Could it work? Are we willing to give it a chance to work? It may not work, but, but if someone's already taking that leap of faith, could it work? You want to at least promise them like, I'll have the budget I need to give it a proper try. I'll be, you know, able to, we'll be able to find out if it can work. Um, Cause that's, that's you know, where that community is yeah. key to showing that there's enough people that believe. Yeah. And often exactly. And that often opens other doors and other sources of funding as well. Um, in agri, if you look at crowdfunding, you know, add it all up, it's actually like pretty small fry compared to the amount of, you know, venture capital or government funding or philanthropy, like other big, but I think what it's really amazing, just like angel investment is really small fry compared to the totality of VC investing, but that, those angel investors often are the people who make it possible for Airbnb and Dropbox and, you know, other breakthrough ideas to actually prove that they can work. Um, and so that- well, And, and so investors and customers are looking for proof that if you've yep. convinced this group of people to get behind you, then yep. they have faith that That's you the can- the with a, a community of customers. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and actually, so what I just want to say before though is that no one ever gets, no one ever falls just short. Um, it, you know that 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 nightmare scenario that you're like ninety waves, ninety percent of the way towards your all or nothing goal, and then you fall just short. It literally has never happened because if people cared so little about your outcome that they would let you fall just short, you wouldn't be that close. You know, if you're raising like ten thousand dollars, say the last thousand is the easiest thousand. You know, the maybe the first thousand is the easiest thousand if you have some family and friends lined up and willing to back you. But then every other thousand is harder than that last one because people love filling the last bit. People love reaching deadlines. People love succeeding at goals, you know, and, and being part of winning teams. Um, and people hate seeing waste and people hate seeing loss and people hate seeing people they care about or ideas they care about, you know, fall just short. And the idea that $9,000 that was ready to be invested could just evaporate drives the final thousand dollars every time um no one ever no one ever gets left just short um and so that should make people be a little bit braver i think that if you can get halfway often then you've kind of got a match effect you know you've got five thousand dollars but you need to match it or else you don't get it and we've known in, in the philanthropic world they've known the power of those kind of match dynamics for a really long time because people love feeling like their money is going even further than what they have themselves that when i give 50 it's worth 100 and so on so when you think about the change makers and innovators and business startups and everybody that's listening to this podcast, what's your one piece of advice when it comes to stepping out and seeing the success that they're looking for? What's the one piece of advice you'd like to leave them with? Start sharing your ideas. I think people sit on their ideas for too long. Um, and I think the act of sharing what you're working on really helps you get better at how you express it. It's practicing in some ways you're always pitching you're not not people feel bad sometimes about the word pitching you're not always necessarily looking for anything other than to gauge people's reaction and over time though 
if you're sharing what you care about, you'll find other people who care about it as well. And you'll slowly begin to build, whether that's online or offline, you know, whatever is right for you. But if you're someone who uses social media, and you, I mean, you should. It's pretty important and powerful these days, obviously. Um, start sharing your, your idea there. You know, start figure out what the hashtags. Where, where are the people who care about the thing you care about? Where are they hanging out right now? Because they're hanging out somewhere. They're listening to certain podcasts. They're paying attention to certain hashtags. They're in certain groups. They follow certain thought leaders. Figure out where they are and join that community. Be part of that community. And then if you get to the point, and I hope you do, where you're ready to offer, you know, something specific, like you're ready to launch, you're ready to test your product, you'll have a bunch of people who will at least be willing to be ready to listen if you've already, like, you know, become part of that community. And it's amazing how, how many super successful campaigns can be driven entirely out of very specific groups. I'm thinking a friend of mine once who raised, she was, this is a lot of years ago, obviously, but she was the first ever $50,000 fundraiser on possible so it's like way back but um it was to it was to buy a ton of wool to make yarn and the minimums you know you had to buy a ton or whatever and something like 92 percent of all the support she got was out of a single community called yardly or yarning or some you know very niche community for people who are super passionate about yarn which is like a very particular thing um and but of course she didn't rock up to that community when she had a crowdfunding campaign to pitch them and that i think is the mistake people make they often leave it too late they wait until they have something they're waiting, they're, they wait until they, they want something. And that's that's late. It's not too late. I mean, you can build the community entirely through your crowdfunding campaign, through your great offer, through finding the people to offer that to. That's totally possible. But if you're just getting started, I think don't wait till then to to, to get involved. Yeah. Meet people, yeah, social yeah, media listen, now. learn what else is happening out there. It's always shocking to me how many people like want to launch a thing and are unaware of something that is exactly like that, you know, because they just haven't done They've got very, they, they had an idea, they got really passionate about the idea, they haven't really shared it with anyone, and now they're launching it. It's like, whoa, you're like, you don't even know the lie of the land yet. And it, that's not to say you shouldn't then launch a competitor, take them on, do your thing for sure, but like helps to know who, who else is out there and what's going on. Anyway, so don't be shy. Yeah. I think, yeah, just just share just share your passion. You don't need an idea yet. Share, share what you're interested in. Share your question. That's actually a great place to start is not with a solution, but this is what I'm thinking about. This is what I'm trying to figure out. So yeah, share your question and and listen to what people share, give you back, and you know maybe you'll maybe you'll find a co-founder as well because um that's a whole other topic that I'm you know a big believer in trying to found stuff with people rather than solo in general because it's a it's a big journey. Well, and I was going to say social media now gives people unprecedented opportunity to co-create what they're doing with a community of people and. You can use it to test every little part along the way. And, you know, the most successful products and launches that are happening in yeah. any space now are the ones that really include their community in, in that story. And where people feel yeah. like they almost co-created, of course, they're going to support it or buy it when it launches. And it's one of the interesting things about the difference between men and women on social media. And I'm not sure there have to be male equivalents, but there are so many, you know, if you're a male founder, I would say find a female <laughs> that you can bring along on the journey because the female Facebook groups that exist out there and the communities where women can literally just share pieces of their journey and yeah. it makes or breaks businesses because mm -hmm. if they're sharing some of who they are, they're bringing all of these people um, you know, there are some that have got hundreds of thousands of women in them who are all there to support each other. And women are quite 
open in their sharing on social media. And, you know, I've seen some amazing businesses, social enterprises that have just been launched out of these Facebook groups because they've really mastered the art of asking for feedback, doing that in a really authentic and genuine way and incorporating that into what it is that they're offering. So yeah, some opportunities there for people. Sure is. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining me today. How do people connect with you, find out more about uh, Start Some Good? Yeah, for sure. So we, you know, we're all about helping people start things. And so depending on where you're at with that journey, you may be interested in our design course, which is a universal kind of, it teaches the core universal elements to creating launch-ready impact projects over 10 weeks. And that's called Good Hustle. And that's at goodhustle.online. I'm not sure when this is coming out, but we have another cohort in four weeks. It happens about every two months. And I host that personally. Um, and then, of course, if you're more at the stage of, getting your offer out there, raising money or, or potentially selling um, the first version of your social enterprise product, we'd love to help you do that at our crowdfunding platform at startsomegood.com. Uh, for me, myself, the two net, the two sort of platforms that I am most active in sharing my story, learnings and so on are, are LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm Tom JD on Twitter and just search Tom Dawkins um, on LinkedIn and I think I'll probably be the first result or just linkedin.com slash IN slash Tom Dawkins will get you there as well. And I, anyone who's working on a, on an idea to make a difference, I really encourage you to, to um, I'd love to connect with you. I'd love to follow your journey. I'd love to learn from you. And if there's anything that I could offer along the way as well, you know, that would be wonderful. So Fantastic. just let me know that you heard me on this show. So I know where it comes from. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining me today. It's been great talking all things social enterprise and community. It's been wonderful, Kate. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Social Lights podcast produced by Social Mediology. You can connect with us on Facebook at Social Lights Podcast and you can find today's show notes and more episodes at socialmediology.com.au forward slash social lights. Please subscribe in your favourite podcast platform to receive future episodes and share with your tribe to inspire others to action.